Yeah, so I, I don't think that we can both be honest and uh, fail to admit that Paul was misogynist. If we're going to retain the idea that the Bible is authoritative, um, we have to we have to go to um, the idea that Paul was just straight up wrong. Welcome, everyone, to the Faith Recovery Podcast, where three failed pastors, Alex Blanton, Nathan Wilkerson, Kent Hodgkins, are seeking to recover the faith. We're seeking to recover from bad ideas about God and Christianity and recover what's good about the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And we've been in a series about the Bible, about the inspiration of Scripture, about the Bible as the Word of God, a series called Unbelievable, Addressing Obstacles to the Faith. And we are today going to just dive into a difficult passage from the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And here's one of those passages in Paul that people have issues with and that um, make people question whether the Bible is inspired and whether they can follow the Bible, every word of it, as the word of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, let's begin in verse 11. Paul says, um, let a woman learn quietly. With all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And I'll just uh, start by saying... When I went to seminary years ago, I went to a more progressive seminary, and generally speaking, people were throwing this one out and saying, you know, we're going we're gonna to promote women as teachers and leaders in the church, and we're going to uh, take different approaches to Paul to support that. And one of the approaches was to say, well, Paul didn't write this book in the first place. And there's some uh, issues people take some, with textual, um, uh, this is some textual issues that scholars sometimes take with this. Uh, letter or with this section of the letter so that you can find a way. Some people ha think they have found a way to say Paul didn't write this. And of course you have to do that if Paul is the authority that you have to follow in every word that he says. If that's the premise, then you have to find a way that Paul didn't write this. That's one way to approach it. Of course, an obvious, obviously another way to approach it is just to obey it and find a way to obey it as best you can. Um, and then that raises questions about women and your views of women. Um, and then um, others will say that uh, we, we don't think Paul was right. We, we love Paul, but on this case, we don't think he was right. Then there's a question that's raised. How can you say that Paul is not right since he's your authority? Or how can you say Paul is not right since he grounds his argument in creation rather than in culture or his personal opinions about women? He says, the reason for my, my view is that... Um, Adam was formed first and then Eve and the woman was not deceived, but I mean, the man was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. So those are some of the issues we're going to just throw out on the table and discuss today. Sounds good. Well, you know, I think that the problem, the problem was saying, Hey, maybe this wasn't from, um, maybe this wasn't really Paul is that, uh, you know, at, at what point do we begin to just arbitrate which passages of Scripture are inspired? Um, it, it really, I, I think that the that the sum or you know the result is that we're we're still we become the arbiters 
of truth and not something outside of ourselves. And so it's not really a, a religious proposition anymore. We, it's more of a philosophical proposition. We're more like, what do we like? Okay, those parts are valid, you know, and, and that, that becomes difficult to maintain because now we're just our own rule makers and um, we are looking back with a modernist lens. And so it, it gives us the right to, to arbitrate that. Um, and so I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth. Yeah, yeah, cause yeah. You're, so you're saying, you're saying uh, there's an issue with saying um, that Paul didn't write this. Because how are we to, at this point, two thousand years later, going right. to arbit- arbitrate that? Right, and it becomes all too convenient, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, we just keep doing that as soon as something. Because I mean, uh, let's be honest, uh, you know, as the issue, the issues uh, with women uh, are gender issues, and now we're going to get into other gender issues, you know, LGBTQ and stuff like that. And I know that there are many people, believers, who would say, well, then those passages say Romans 1 or 1 Corinthians 6 or, you know, uh, others are also not, they may say, well, those aren't Paul either or whatever, you know, we can say, they don't say what they seem to say or what we think that they say. And all of that becomes um, untenable because it just means that our value system is going to conform to what's popular. And, um, and, and I think it delegitimizes our own message when we when we take that approach, when we begin to say, well, our society, you know, our culture, our sense of morality is that homosexuality is okay, women and men are equal, um, that war is not really justifiable. You know, we, we can begin to take a, a set of uh, a moral positions and then we can go back and begin to redact the Bible to fit that and... Uh, that's I, I think that, that, that that's wrong in two ways. I, I think it's an in, it's a uh, disservice to the faith that we claim to believe. It's a disservice to ourselves, and it's a disservice to the the watching world or the critic. It's a disservice to the um, to the Bible in that it makes us the authority, and it makes and, and really not so much us, but popular culture, uh, recent thinking. So it's a disservice to the Bible in that it, it really invalidates the Bible as a, a source of moral authority. Uh, it's a disservice to the church in that we really become indistinguishable from the surrounding culture. We, we don't have a, a unique message. And, and I think that the critique of, of evangelicals and of Christians in general is that none of us are really using a biblical um, ethic that we, we've absorbed the same ethic as the rest of the world around us, and we're just using the Bible to, to support it. Um, there's really, you know, the fact that we, that we don't just stand up and say, well, you know, screw you, uh, women are not the same as men. You know, we, we feel that we have to somehow um, conform to what has become the popular notion or be wrong. And then the third thing is that we aren't entering into a fair dialogue with our critics because we give them no ammunition. As soon as they find something to critique, we just say, oh, oh, that's not true. That's, that's not the way we believe. We, we never believe like that. And, and we immediately revise our position once we're completely boxed in. And so for those three reasons, the approach to say, well, Paul didn't write this, um, or this is no longer valid, it, it really does undercut our own credibility, I think, as a movement. Um, and so we just have to be careful with that. 
Yeah, I think that's interesting. You bring up that point about credibility because um, just think about the context of this passage and the, that Paul was writing. He he starts out this whole idea coming into, you know, he starts out, first of all, I urge that request, prayers, intercessions, and thanks be made uh, on behalf of all people, even for our kings and those who are in authority, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And so he's really kind of, this whole idea about how the roles of men and women and how they should behave within, uh, you know, the, the church community, he's, he's got this eye towards how, how, uh, men and women behave is being observed and affects, you know, this, uh, sense of our our peaceful and, and quiet life is, is going to show the world that's around us, the rest of the world, uh, who we are and, by how we live and so you know he he goes into this idea that this is why he was appointed as an apostle and teacher so that people would would see it and, and know you know that um it says here such prayer for all is good and welcome before god our savior since he wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth and so when he gets down to talking about the women i you know and how they're supposed to dress and behave and some of these kind of nation issues um you know, I think it's good to remember that there, there is a context there that um, how we behave and how we do these things as a community, people are watching us. And so, um, so yeah. Well, now I think your argument there, and this is, this is maybe the most uh, common argument made, and it's a good argument, is that we got to see Paul in context. We got to understand that he's being a pastor and he's applying uh, uh, creatively, um, ad hoc, uh, some some principles to his current setting, and in that setting, he felt it was advisable that, you know, given that culture, given that time, mm-hmm. given the uh, the church's reputation, it was advisable that women not uh, that women keep quiet in church and yeah. be uh, in submission to men, and that uh, only men should teach. And that is, uh, I failed to mention in my opening remarks, that's probably the most common argument made. Yeah, and that was the tradition that I was brought up in, uh, one where very much women did teach. In fact, uh, we were part of a denomination or movement that was founded by a woman, you know, so that it was kind of, they had to find some way, some way to explain or at least justify it. And they they had a few different approaches to it. But yeah, it's very much, well, this is, this is a, a cultural expression of how we be, how are we going to be, uh, you know, peaceful and quiet, uh, you know, within the community that we, we exist. And so women need to behave a certain way because that's what's expected of them and will not cause, you know, uh, turmoil or conflict with, uh, uh, the people that are around us. And seeing it in that light gives us grounds for relativizing that command of Paul for today and right. saying that it's not a timeless, eternal, uh, application. It was time bound and culture yeah. bound. So the point is, is not whether women should talk or not talk. It's what it's how how should they then within our cultural context be be peaceful and quiet and not cause conflict with you know within the communities. So. Okay, now here's a problem with that. It's a great argument until you get to Paul's um, reasoning that he gives. He actually states his reasoning. He doesn't say, "I'm telling you this because of the culture, because of the times we're living yes. in." I'm telling you this. That this is the case, that this is my rule, because Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. 
yeah, the the complicated part here is, you know, verse 12, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. She must remain quiet. It seems pretty firm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he goes into the whole bit about uh, the order of creation and man being created first. And so how how do we deal with some of that where it seems like he he kind of doubles down on something there that at first we could, you know, I think a lot of people do kind of have this explanation like, well, this is really a, just a cult, cultural, uh, you know, consideration to, to make sure that the church community wasn't um, being disturbing force within their, you know, their, their uh, city or their the place where they lived. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I think that, um, the, the difficulty with it, you know, with that explanation of it being cultural is, yeah, like as you said, Kent, that Paul doesn't really tie it to that. He ties it to something and, um, that is more enduring and something that is more uh, fundamental. But um, at the same time, um, you know, Paul, Paul had said probably things that were even more troubling, I think, about women that, um, that we just don't. They're... You know, we don't read First Corinthians eleven verses one through sixteen, for instance, because um, that one is it talks about this idea of wearing a veil or head covering, and then that becomes embarrassing to us um, in a lot of ways as a movement. And um, people don't, you know, women don't cover their heads in our assemblies, and and we can say, oh, well, that was culture and all that. But having really studied that passage quite a lot, because I thought uh, we'd go to hell if I did it wrong. Um, that, uh, you know, I, I don't see any justification to relegate that one to the cultural scrap heap either. Why is that? Is it because he grounds it in creation there, too? He does. Yeah. And and uh, in a, a predominant belief about the angelic beings and the way that they interact with women, you know, I mean, uh, it was it was because the, the sons of God fell in love with the daughters of men that the flood came on, you know, in Genesis 6. And especially if you were familiar with the book of uh, Enoch, which they apparently all were um so uh, you know paul says women should cover their heads because they were made for men that they you know that that the glory of of christ is the man and that the glory of the man is the woman and that women should cover their heads because of the angels who are there who've, who've come to the assembly of the saints and so um yeah, we don't we don't want the angels to lust uh, or whatever it was his idea was of it, and and so those are those are some really uh, kind of troubling views on women that women were made inherently um, uh, subordinate, but not just subordinate, but inferior. Uh, you know, I mean, the glory when we're talking about glory, we're talking about actual value, you know, moral worth, um, and and so women are made the glory of man man has made the glory of Christ, you know. So there's this hierarchy of God to Christ, Christ to man, man to woman. And um, that there, that, that is, I, I think, a, a more troubling doctrine than even what he says in uh, 1 Timothy 2 about how the woman was made second. Uh, so, But it yeah. seems to be lying in the background when he says the man was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. Exactly, in, yeah. In 1 Timothy 2. Yeah, so I, I don't think that we can both be honest and uh, fail to admit that Paul was misogynist. He was misogynist. I think we just have to accept that, you know, that uh, at least I don't think he sat around and thought about how much he hated women. But I, I think that his 
view of scripture was rooted in a view of women, you know, as inferior. And he found passages that, you know, would corroborate that. So, yeah. Someone would argue with you and jump to passages like Ephesians 5, where husbands are to love their wives and cherish them. And uh, somewhere in Peter, where Peter says, um, your wife is a joint heir in the grace of life. Live with her in an understanding way. Um, but it does there say she's a weaker vessel, so that might tie into um, a, a view of women as inferior. Sure. But I'm just saying that folks would try to balance that out and, and find passages which honor women yes. as joint heirs, as, yeah. is, as uh, equal in the image of God. Right, and, and I think there's a definitely a thread throughout Scripture. There's, there's a very progressive thread throughout the New Testament about women. I mean, it, you know, and you, if you read the Gospels, and Jesus is, is violating all kinds of social norms you know you get the story of the woman at the well of john four and 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 there's this acknowledgement that that jewish men you know didn't talk to women out in public so there's there's kind of the crossing of of that line um you know there's there's the woman taken in adultery and and you know and in the mosaic law even that there that those were treated differently between a man's offenses and a woman's offenses and yet jesus says hey if you, none of you have sinned then you can throw the first stone so this is notion that these male Jewish leaders are somehow under the same authority as the man. Um, you have Jesus inviting a woman into synagogue proper to be healed as he's, you know, he's teaching in the synagogue and here's this woman. He sees her kind of, you know, the women aren't inside there. They're kind of standing at the back and he says, you come here, come up to the front. So, you see a, a movement throughout the New Testament of, of women moving forward, but it, would that include know, Paul's uh, partnering with women? I mean, you, sure. you're, you went to Jesus, you jumped to Jesus, and yeah. I can imagine a critic saying, "Okay, now you're pitting Paul against Jesus. You're saying Paul's misogynist. Jesus promotes women, but then also let's defend Paul as well. That Paul uh, worked with women, Priscilla and Aquila, and right. he, um, you know, the, Lydia, and there's there's there's, there's mm-hmm. women scattered throughout the letters. Thecla. Whoever that is, yeah. that's a woman. Okay. Well, you know, yeah, it's a it's a pseudepigraphical uh, book about Paul and Thecla. That, oh. uh, you know, her his his exploits with it, this female um, co- cohort that he went around and evangelized with, and nobody knows if that's authoritative or not. But uh, yeah, he certainly you know he speaks of Phoebe, who's a deacon in the church uh, in Romans sixteen. So yeah, I I think that Paul perhaps was of two minds, and and if you if I were a feminist, and maybe I am, but um, you know, I, I would I would be somewhat cynical of even Paul's kinder words toward women because it it's it's almost uh, patronizing. You know, it's like you know, cherish them and coddle them. You know, and, and it's it. I think people who are advocating for full equality between men and women and not just some sort of complementarianism, um, they would say, well, that that's still somewhat misogynist in that. You know, the, the, the woman's role in the marriage even is different, you know, as a subordinate that just as Christ loves his subordinate, so the husband should love his subordinate, you know. And, and then that's a challenge, I think, for some people and that it relegates women to this second chair status um, even before God. So, that, Okay, so that was all a tangent. Yeah. You were saying, yes, there's... there's um, there's 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 uh, there's the, there's a theme of equality and uh, full personhood for women yeah. in the New Testament, 
right? Yeah. Jesus and Paul. And that was a tangent. Where were we going? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Well, I was saying, I, I think that however we uh, confront that, whether, uh, and you gave, I think you gave all the possible answers there, you know, whether we know that we can't say, okay, it was just a cultural thing that Paul was, didn't believe that women were in this second, secondary status, but that he was um, giving them advice on, on advancing the gospel and not making the gospel look bad. We know we can exclude that argument. Um, the the response that uh, this wasn't inspired, uh, this First Timothy wasn't a part of the isn't a part of the canon. Well, we we can accept that one, but we have to then accept a lower degree of confidence in the rest of the New Testament. You know, we have to say, well, if that one isn't, then maybe none of them are. I mean, it you know that there's this possibility that that the process of canonization was flawed. You know, then then we have to ask, well, which books of the Bible should we treat as authoritative? You know, I, I don't like James. I think it's an epistle of straw. Right. Uh, and and so well, then, you know, maybe we could just start going and, and cutting and pasting and saying, well, anything that doesn't meet my sensibilities is not inspired. You know, and, and we can find scholarship to support that. I'm not saying we do it arbitrarily, but even if we go and we say, okay, well, this is going to have to meet some sort of scholarly rigor. Look, there are massive sections of the New Testament that claim to be uninspired. Luke and Acts. Luke doesn't say, and I met the angel Gabriel, and he gave me a, you know, a magical quill and told me to write this down. He says, I've done some research, and I've you know, I've looked and I've, you know, I, he's saying this is very much a human enterprise, what I've done. And, and, you know, there's total material there. There's as much from Luke as there is from Paul. So now, you know, if we say, okay, well, I'm not going to take anything that doesn't come directly from God. It's not dictated by God. And, and, you know, that I can't establish was dictated by God. Then I'm going to take out Luke and Acts. You know, at, at what point did we say, well, you know, maybe none of this is inspired. You know, you look at Matthew it's almost certain that Matthew himself didn't write it. I mean, I think our confidence in in the inspiration of the Bible must lie in um, God's providential care of the canon. And if we begin to call that into question, the, that, you know, any of those 66 books doesn't belong there, then we really are going to unzip the whole thing. We're going to have to say, well, maybe it should be you know, however many books, as soon as we begin to have problems, I believe we can critique it. Um, you know, we, what's the most, uh, what's the oldest Old Testament manuscripts we have? I mean, until the discover, discovery of Qumran, they were like 1000 AD, or CE, depending on how progressive you are. But so, you know, maybe all this was written in the Christian era. Maybe it was all an apologist idea you know, after the destruction of the temple to give legitimacy to this displaced people. Well, we discovered some in Qumran. We realized that at least Isaiah was there and Daniel was there already. You know, if we don't trust in the canon, then we're probably going to be up a creek. So you're arguing for an inspired canon, and uh, you're, you're, you're arguing for an inspired process of canonization. The Bible is God's word because God in, uh, providentially brought it into existence. And at the same time, you're saying that there are words in the Bible which do not reflect God's mind, God's heart, God's will. Sp words spoken by his authorized spokespersons. 
Yes, I, I, I think as, that's and we words which were spoken by them as commands. Yes, right. As as truth. Right. Okay. Right. Let's 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 flesh that out. <laughs> right. I, I think that's where that's where we have to go if we're going to retain the idea that the Bible is authoritative. Um, we have to we have to go to um, the idea that Paul was just straight up wrong. Um, and, and so, you know, it's like it may sound strange to say, well, I, you know, I'm going to affirm that God was working through Athanasius to put this together. But I'm, I'm not going to affirm that God was working through Paul uh, to keep him from saying stupid stuff about women. Um, and um, but but I, I, I can go there and I, I think I can be consistent because uh, Paul himself didn't make such claims. For himself, he didn't. He didn't. Just like Luke didn't say, you know, God is dictating words to me. Neither did Paul. Uh, Paul, and you know, here's a in Galatians chapter two. Um, Paul, even when it comes to the gospel, says, uh, "I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed to be leaders." He's speaking of a trip to Jerusalem that he made. Um, I, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles, and this this Greek for present means to to lay before someone. You know, and and then he says, I wanted to be sure I was not running and not had not been running the race in vain. So here's Paul. He's preaching this gospel that includes the inclusion of the Gentiles. And he's saying, I I laid that out before the apostles in Jerusalem, the guys who knew Jesus. And the natural sense of that for me, the naive or, or, you know, straightforward sense of that is Paul wanted their approval for his gospel, which means he didn't presume that he was right in everything that he said. He even says, hey, if I come back and I say something different, may I be accursed? You know, 1 Corinthians 7, he's like, hey, you know, you guys have asked me these questions. Um, I think you should do this. And I think I have the Holy Spirit in that, in that recommendation. So Paul himself, I think if we're going to really take the Bible for what it says, we have to admit that Paul himself admitted that he could be wrong on some stuff. Uh, and that he was himself subject to a revelation from yes. God that he had received. And that he, if he misspoke about that, you, you a minute ago you referenced yes. that. You said, if Paul says in Galatians, if I or anybody else should preach to you a gospel different than the one we previously preached to you, then let them, including me, be accursed. Exactly. Okay, so he's not like the Pope who speaks ex cathedra. When he speaks from the chair, he cannot error. Right. He he is himself subject to a revelation. Yes, yes. And and I think that's why you get in the New Testament the sense that guy, these guys were okay with the idea that they could be wrong. They didn't need to claim some sort of special inspiration. Uh, it doesn't seem, at least from Paul's perspective here, that he had any sort of implicit authority that would rival the gospel, that he was subject to the gospel and that he was subject to um, other people's understanding of the gospel. Because, you know, he says, if you, if somebody preaches any other gospel than what we've delivered, let them be accursed. I say to you again, if, you, if anyone preaches any other gospel than the one you received, let him be accursed. So he's giving them confidence in their understanding of his message. He's saying what you understood me to say is what you can hold me accountable to. 
And so the, the gospel is so simple that it doesn't even have this layer of interpreters or ecclesiastical authority placed within interpreters of the gospel, that the gospel itself is straightforward enough that can be understood accurately and that you can now hold somebody else accountable who says something that doesn't jibe with it. Um, and Paul, so Paul understood that, that the revelation was the, the proclamation about Jesus. That's it. And that um, we should be able to use that proclamation as the standard. So, And with that standard, we can yes. judge even Paul's own words. Exactly. Such as his words in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, Paul is, he's, he's interpreting the Bible there in 1 Timothy 2, but, but I, I think that we have to know the difference between, you know, the legislative authority of the kingdom and the executive authority of the kingdom. Okay. Uh, the legislative authority of the kingdom is the gospel, the law, the covenant. It's once delivered. You can't go back. You can't redact it. You can't mess with it. If you try to mess with it, you're under God's curse. Then there's the executive authority, and that is this sense of, okay, um, for Paul as an apostle, he is, he is working as a servant of the church to apply the gospel in people's lives, to uh, facilitate the gospel's spread. Those are, those are things that are not once-for-all revelations. These are cultural. They're time-bound. Um, there's a degree to which they are wisdom and not dogma. And, and they're susceptible to error. Yes, Yes. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that it had to go through Paul uh, as a person and as he was. And I think Paul entertained the notion and was at least um, cognizant of the fact that he could make mistakes. Um, and but he wasn't but everything didn't stand or fall on that because the Christian system is not based on ecclesiastical authority. And I and I think that if had we understood that early on, the Christianity would be a lot healthier. You know, we would have had a lot of variants and factions just like they did in their day. But there wouldn't be anybody that would say, conform or burn. And that's when we begin to get, you know, when we, when we um, attribute to Paul or Peter or whoever implicit authority as a human, then we've opened the door for an ecclesiastical hierarchy that enforces the gospel against people's will. And that's what Paul would have never signed off on and you know paul paul describes his role he says uh in i think it's in second corinthians one he says i am not a uh, lord over your faith but a helper of your joy and if we could understand that and we could say okay so paul's role is to be a helper of our joy he's assuming that the joy is there he's assuming that the faith is the authority in our lives and he's saying look if what I tell you, to borrow from Marie Kondo, sparks joy, keep it. <laughs> and if it doesn't, lose it, you know. I, I, I mean, there's a degree to which, and when I say joy, I mean, I, obviously this is in a, in a mature sense. It's not some, some sort of idea of delight. But does this cause flourishing in the individual Christian and in the Christian community? So I would say that his instructions about women do not, they don't meet that standard. Yeah. So br bringing it back to the, the original passage, um, I think you're, you're presenting another way to approach it than maybe some of the standard arguments that are, are traditions that a lot of us grew up with. So 
um, let's bring it back to the passage. Take it, take take us through it again, you know, so to speak. Uh, but you know, t- uh, doing it so through this this framework or this lens that you've just explained to us. Well, unfortunately, there's nothing uh, super exciting about the way I would go through it, except to say that he was wrong. Um, you know, so uh, I think that if I were going to go through the Pauline material. Um, I, I would look at where he's speaking specifically about the gospel. And, and, and I, I would say that when Paul is talking about the gospel, I'm not inclined to disagree with him or to be skeptical of him. When Paul is talking about procedure, that's where I'm, where I, when I say there's this executive authority that he had, you know, in the first century, um, even if he were wrong then, number one, it wouldn't have been a problem for the advance of the gospel or anything else. Uh, because, I mean, even even his most misogynist, misogynistic moments were progressive. <laughs> you know, I mean, the idea that women should cover their heads and, and men shouldn't in 1 Corinthians 11 was very progressive because women are praying and prophesying there. I mean, that's the assumption that they're somehow taking a leadership role in the church. So that's pretty progressive compared to the synagogue. You know, so even in those cases, uh, I think that there is a we can watch a trend toward equality. So I I wouldn't say Paul was being regressive in his immediate context, but and in his executive office, not his legislative office, that he was doing a faithful job. But we don't need to take his executive mandates as gospel, pun intended, because they weren't meant to be. They were written to hit a particular time and place. They're time-bound. And we need that office today, I think. We need people who are spirit-led and called to facilitate the spread of the gospel and the health of the church. Why, why can't we have that? And then, when we have that, why can't those people later be subject to critique? And we're free to have that, you would argue. We're free to operate in that executive office today applying the gospel differently than Paul did in his day, even differing from some of Paul's procedures. Mm-hmm. We're free to do that because our authority is not every word of the New Testament, but rather right. is the gospel. Right. And I, I would say even to apply the gospel more fully than Paul did. I, I don't think Paul is applying the gospel in First Timothy 2 because he's He's going back to a, a biblical precedent. So he's saying, um, you know, Adam was formed and then Eve, and, and that's the reason. And, and Adam was not deceived and the woman, you know, so this is, this is him doing uh, biblical exegesis and not ministering the gospel itself. There's no gospel implications. So Paul goes back in, you mentioned, somebody mentioned Ephesians 5, right? You mentioned yeah. Ephesians 5. He goes back in Ephesians 5 uh, and he borrows from the creation narrative. But there he says um, that there's a mystery there about Christ and the church. Now, in that place, he is ministering the gospel. That, that this is very clearly about the gospel and not about um, application of the Torah in, in some way. You know, and so there, uh, there he, I, I think God had opened to him an insight into the scripture. Um, and so when I, when he talks about Jesus, I, I I'm inclined to say yeah that he's he's seeing something, but when he's talking about other matters that are not specifically the gospel, 
he's as subject, I think, to just bad interpretation as anybody else. And and frankly, you know, Adam uh, Adam was formed first, and and then Eve, right? Um, but if you go to Genesis one, the animals were formed before Adam, so maybe the animals are above the man, right? I mean, isn't I, if you're going to just follow his line of thinking, whoever was created first is prior in God's mind, then let's go with fish and birds. Fish and birds are, you know, are created before land-dwelling beasts, and land-dwelling beasts are created before humans. So, it, you know, whatever's created first is prior in God's mind. If we're going to follow that thinking out, I think that thinking is screwed up. You know? Yeah, so uh, the, the way you're, you're explaining this, it, you know, once again, is very different than I, I think most most of us kind of grew up with in American evangelicalism because it makes it sound like um, the Bible is an authority, but there there is something within you know the canon that is even greater than just the the text on the page. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I feel like God has, has superintended the creation of this device, this instrument that is supposed to point us to His revelation, and so. Uh, Richard Wormbrand had said something in in his book um, "Tortured for Christ." He said, um, "He said Jesus is the truth. The Bible is the truth about the truth. Yeah. Fundamentalism is the truth about the truth about the truth." I, I don't know if anybody mm-hmm. would agree yeah. with that third one, yeah. but from his perspective, it was. Uh, and and I, I think we have to understand that the Bible's role is an arrow pointing to the gospel. So. If the arrow has some, you know, as we talked about last time, you and I can't that, you know, it's like Bruce Lee said, it's that, you know, it's a finger pointing away to the moon, you know, and if we fixate on the finger, we're never, we're going to miss all the heavenly glory, you know, and, and, and the, the Bible is the finger, you know, and, and so it, the Bible can have errors so long as there is a contiguous line from the knuckle at the hand to the tip that all line up in, in the same direction, it's doing its job. Mm-hmm. Along the way, we may have issues, but so long as there's a contiguous line. But when we begin to question the canon, we begin to ask, we begin to say, well, there, there are segments of that finger that don't belong. Now, now we, we, we start throwing ourselves into confusion. And, and I think we, we will begin to get a, a understanding of the gospel and of Christ that not coincidentally reflects our own values and preferences. And, and so I, I think it's important, like Paul says, you know, hey, here's the gospel. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. I think that according to the scriptures part is important. And so that's why we don't need to question the canon. Um, but in, throughout that, you know, that litany of books, I, I think we can also say, well, there were things that were culturally bound. There were things that were perhaps tribal in nature or biased in nature and and we can still be okay with that because the all of the books are pointing in the same direction. Now, what would you say though to those who would say something that sounds similar to what you're saying and if you're not listening carefully might sound like the same as what you're saying. Those who say that Jesus in the gospels is our authority and the and is the revelation of God by which we judge all else and can relativize everything else, especially the stuff we don't like. 
Yeah, I, I mean, Jesus in the Gospels is probably not as nice as most people think he is. I mean, you know, he talked about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. Um, so, you know, it, this whole turn or burn thing started with, with Jesus. And, and so that, you know, uh, whatever exceptions we might take to the genocide or whatever in the Old Testament, all of those are just child's play and, and being, you know, hit with a silk pillow uh, compared to being thrown into this fire, you know. Um, so Jesus isn't quite as nice as people say he is in the, in the New Testament. Yeah, he hung out with hookers and stuff. That's fine. Uh, and, and we want to aspire to be like him. I, I, I think that uh, from of a skeptical viewpoint, that argument just won't stand up in the sense that we only know Jesus from the Gospels from the Gospels. So we can't say, well, not the whole, you know, we, we, we can't, you know, the, we can't call certain parts of the Bible into question in favor of other parts of the Bible. You know, that's like sawing off the limb you're standing on. Um, and so there's no, there's no picture of Jesus. There's no depiction of Jesus um, as, as Jesus of Nazareth other than the Gospels. And so we have to say, well, then only those four books are infallible. Yeah. So um, yeah, let's talk about that a little bit because yeah, I see there kind of being two two arguments or two paths that people tend to go down with this Jesus, <laughs> like you're describing, uh, Kent, um, because you know there's a lot of debates about the historical Jesus. If we look, you know, if somehow we look at. Um, the Jesus that's described the person that, you know, is in this time and space on earth. Um, if we look at him and how he's described and we just follow his behavior model, um, then somehow that that's what puts us on, on the right path. Um, but how does that fit in with this framework of what the gospel is? Because at, at some point, you know, it's clear to me that the gospel is about Jesus he's the mystery revealed right. so yeah well when paul when paul went or peter or anybody went to preach the gospel they didn't say open the book of john um you know and by the way the gospels all came after the letters as far as we know best scholarship says that the earliest gospel was probably mid 60s ad uh earliest letter was probably mid 40s to early 50s um probably more mid 40s because we know romans is not the earliest and we can kind of pinpoint it around 52 so Galatians, Thessalonians, these are probably written in the 40s, okay? So this is a very early movement, and it's being written to people who are already Christians, you know? So Christianity doesn't come out of the Gospels because the Gospels antedate, you know, or post-date and it, the, the existence of the church. Christianity comes out of the out Gospel of the message about Christ. Right. It doesn't come out of the Gospels. Right. That tell us the, the life of Christ. Exactly. So it, it's not so much that Christ is, um, as presented in the Gospels, is false. Um, I, I love Jesus. That's how I, how I came to faith, the Jesus who's presented in the Gospels. It's just that he's not generalizable. Um, and, and I think that when people try to follow him, what they get is a ton of either guilt or self-righteousness. Uh, if you succeed at it, you're probably the best person you know. If you fail at it, you are perpetually a failure who's just always coming short of what you ought to do. And 
probably resenting the people in your life who are keeping you from being like Jesus. You're just asking, why can't I just up and leave my family like I should? Or why can't I just sell this stupid house and live in, you know, under an overpass with my kids? And, and, and now you're just, you're angry at everybody and, and all that. It just doesn't work. Uh, Paul says that the gospel has taken a human life and, and turned it into a spirit. That Christ has become a spirit of life. Not a human being who can't be generalized, but a spirit. And I think that it is through the proclamation of his death, burial, and resurrection. So yes, knowing who Jesus is is helpful. But Paul knew who Jesus was before the Gospels were written. Some through, someone would say, well, an oral Jesus tradition. But most of it would be through an Old Testament understanding of the king who would come. And, And so I think Paul's understanding of the Gospel was much richer because he understood it in the context of the expectation through Scripture. So uh, I know we're out of time, right? So is there any parting thoughts or anything that we want to leave people with? I, I, I would say just bottom line, the gospel is the authority of the kingdom. The Old Testament points to it. The New Testament points, it, I mean, explains it and applies it. But, you know, even if you look at Paul... Read the Pauline letters, and um, any time that somebody had a specific question about behavior, he just went to the gospel. He didn't speak ex cathedra. He didn't say, I have declared that you shall not sue one another. He said, Jesus, though he was rich, for your sakes became poor. What do you think you should do? You know, he's, he's like, should we, should we love our wives? Well, Jesus has a wife. What should you do? You know, I mean, he just, he almost expects everybody to have already known the answer to the questions. He's, he's, oftentimes he comes across as impatient and frustrated that they have these specific questions and problems because the gospel should have answered it for them. Um, now, we know that the gospel is subject to abuse, but I, I believe that it is self-correcting and um, that given enough time, the gospel will at least, you know, Paul says, hey, in, in a, any household, there are uh, vessels to honor and vessels to dishonor. He's just saying, look, the communities you're in are going to be full of people all over the spectrum. And some of those people are going to be going, you know, they're going to be facing judgment. They're not Christians at all. Your job isn't to keep it cleaned out. It's not your house, you know. Just because you're sitting there and you, and you think you're the wine decanter and you want to not be next to the chamber pot, that's not your call. You know, and so, I mean, in that sense, I think Paul offers us a ton of wisdom about how to how to respond from a gospel perspective to not worry so much about making people sign a 10 page confession of faith to make sure we don't get anything polluted in there. I think Paul had enough faith in the gospel to allow there to be a lot of immaturity in the in the churches. And and I think if we took that approach we'd be a lot healthier overall. Plenty to unpack there. Nathan gave us a homework assignment. I think he said, read the letters of Paul and look for that paradigm. Mm -hmm. Let's do that this week, everyone. See you next time. Thanks. Mm